go ahead and take your Bibles and turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter 6. Slowly we're making our way through this wonderful book. This morning we'll be focusing on verses 4 through 8, but let me read from verse 1, Hebrews chapter 6. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying on hands, and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Verse 4. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since again they crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. For ground that drinks the rain which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. Let's pray. Lord, as we come now to your word, we do ask for your great blessing upon it. Lord, we want to be not just hearers of the word, but doers of the word of God. Give me grace, Lord, to preach your word clearly this morning. This passage is in some ways difficult, and so we just ask for grace to understand it, to accept it, and to apply it. We ask this for Christ's sake. Amen. Now, this is not my official Mother's Day sermon. So this morning, when I thought about Mother's Day, I didn't think, oh, I know the best passage, Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 8 about apostasy. So that's not how I chose the Mother's Day sermon. However, remember that this whole passage is about the need for all of us to grow in Christ. And that is for the mothers, and that is for the fathers, and the sons, and the daughters, and for all of us that know Christ and have embraced him, all of us are commanded in chapter 6, verse 1, to press on into maturity. All of us and Christ must grow in Jesus. Especially mothers and fathers and, and husbands. Really, all of us that claim the name of Christ. And we have said that this passage, really chapter 5, verse 11, all the way to chapter 6, verse 12, is grow up. Grow up in Christ. Otherwise, you're placing yourself in a dangerous position. And we've looked at two directions. We've said there's three directions in this passage that the Spirit of God calls us to pursue. In order to grow up, there's three directions And the first one we saw was verses 11 to 14 in chapter 5. And that is that if we have lazy ears, when we hear the word of God preached, or we're reading the Bible and we really don't pay attention, uh, lazy ears is infantile. 
not listening to God's word is being like a little baby in terms of our maturity. And so we need to grow up and have solid food, be mature men and women of God. The second direction we saw last week, and that is resolve to grow up. Make a commitment to become more like Jesus. When it says in chapter 6, verse 1, let us press on to maturity, the idea of maturity, some versions might say perfection, the idea of maturity is being like Jesus Christ. And our actions and our attitudes, we are to pursue growing into the image of Jesus Christ. We are created in the image of God when God made us and the mother of our, of, in the womb of our mother. And then when we are born again, when we are saved, then we become more and more into the image of Christ. We are to press into His image. And we looked at that last week about that request. This morning is about the reason. If you look at chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, you have the request to to grow up, to go forward, to not desert Christ, to not drift away, to not fall away, but to press on to go forward so that you can behave more like Christ, so that you can know Christ and be conformed into his image. That is growing up as a believer. And then verses four through nine are going to give four through eight are going to give the reason. The request was verses 1 through 3. The reason is verses 4 through 8. We could say it this way. Yes, we are to grow up in Christ, but it is a serious matter. It is a grave matter. It has gravity. And here when it says press on to maturity, and then verses 4 through 8 gives a reason, it says if you don't grow up in Christ, then you're going to be burned up. You see that at the end of verse 8. If it doesn't produce fruit, it ends up being burned. If we don't go forward, then we're going to fall away, as it says in verse 6. If you're not going forward, then you're going backward. And if you go backwards, you keep going backwards until you ultimately back up all the way into hell. But it's given in this Section as motivation to grow. Now, this passage, verses 4 through 8, has caused a lot of confusion. It's caused a lot of debate. There's books written about this. There's many different understandings of these verses, because it talks about, if you look at verse 4, once being enlightened, tasting of the heavenly gift, partakers of the Holy Spirit, and then fall away, and especially in verse 6, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. Who is this talking about? What is going on in this passage? And in fact, if you look at verse 6, when it says, it is impossible, in the original Greek text of the New Testament, that word impossible, actually it comes before the word for in verse 4. So verse 4 all the way down to verse 6, really is one sentence. And the first word in this whole passage is impossible. So what is strongly emphasized is this idea of if somebody 
at least verbally, outwardly professes, I'm a Christian, I, I, embraced, I embrace Christ, I, I love Jesus. And yet at the end, rejects him, denies him, betrays him, then it's impossible, and that's underlined and underscored, that that person would ever repent, could be saved. So for that reason, this passage has caused a lot of consternation and doubt. But I think the reason is not because of the difficulty of interpretation. It's really not that hard to interpret this passage. It's the implication that's hard to accept. So the interpretation is not difficult, but the implication is certainly hard not to understand, but to accept. So what I desire to do this morning is we'll just seek first to understand what the text is saying, and then after that, we will seek to apply the text. So first, in terms of seeking to understand what this text is saying, that is verses 4 through 8. Remember, the main point of the whole book of Hebrews is that Jesus is not just better than the angels and Moses and Joshua and the Sabbath and the high priest. He is certainly better, but he's the best there is. He is the supreme and sufficient Savior. Therefore, don't drift away, don't fall away, but grow in Jesus Christ. Here, a huge reason is given because if you do not grow in Jesus after you've confessed Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you place yourself in a dangerous position of going the other way. So how do we understand this? Because again, I'm not making this up. The actual text places the word impossible and in this sentence. You've heard me at times say the word Dunamis or dunatai, the Greek word that means ability or power. Well, this word for impossible is adunatai. Incapable. Doesn't have the power. It's impossible for this to happen. And even in this passage that we have, that is chapter 6, verse 18, it uses this word in which it is impossible for God to lie. God can't lie. God would never lie, ever. You, you can bank your, your whole eternity, and we do, on the fact that God would never, ever lie. It's impossible for him to lie. Chapter 10, verse 4, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Right? They're, they're finite creatures. They also are under the curse. They could never atone for our sins and wipe our sins away. That has to be the blood of the Lamb of God. Chapter 11, verse 6. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is and that He's a rewarder of those who seek Him. Now, I bring out this usage here in the book of Hebrews if the word impossible because sometimes some men, some interpreters will say, well, this is more of a hypothetical. If a person falls away, and I think some versions in italics in verse 6 will put the word if. But it's not really in the text. It, it, it's not there. That's an interpretation and not a translation. 
So when we see the word at least impossible here in the book of Hebrews, impossible in Greek is adunitas. It means impossible. And in English it means impossible. It, 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 it can't happen. That's why I've said you place yourself in a very dangerous position. So how do we understand this? First of all, number one, for us to understand this, we have to also understand eternal salvation is secured by God. This is not saying that you can lose your salvation. Salvation can never, ever be lost. Being saved means that you are saved. If you could lose your salvation, it'd be a pretty poor salvation. It'd be a unsupreme and unsufficient, insufficient Savior. We have a supreme and sufficient Savior that really saves. This passage is not saying that. We have the testimony of the whole Bible. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14 says that you were sealed in him after you believed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. The Holy Spirit is given to us like an engagement ring, saying this good work I've started in you, I will perfect it. I will keep my promise. The Spirit of God guarantees our eternal security, our salvation. You're familiar with Romans. There are so many places in the Bible which talks about all salvation is secured by God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Romans 8.1, therefore there's no condemnation in Christ. The beautiful passage in Romans chapter 8, verse 38, For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to keep us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Even in John 10, it says that the Father holds us in his hand, and even in Christ's hand, and nothing can snatch us from the Father's hand. Our salvation is secure. It's reserved in heaven, kept by the power of God, First Peter says. So this passage is not teaching that we could lose our salvation. That'd be inconsistent with the testimony of Scripture. So that's first. Eternal salvation is secured by God. If you are saved, you are really saved truly saved, then you'll never lose your salvation. Now, number two, in order to us to understand this, this passage, again, which has created confusion and doubt throughout history, it has created many issues. Number two, in order to understand this passage, this text is given to support the command in chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. Oftentimes, when Verse 4, 5, and 6 are, are taught. It's taught out of context. Oftentimes, verses 1 through 3 aren't even mentioned. Are, last night, I was listening to a brief lecture on this passage, and the instructor never brought up the relationship of verse 4 to verse 1. Verse 1 gives the command, the imperative. Let us together press on to maturity. Verse 4 Notice, starts with the English 4. That is, verses 4 through 8 are given explicit support and strength for, for the command. The, the command is, you need to grow in Christ Jesus. The reason explicitly 
is given in verses 4 through 8. That is, the writer of Hebrews is not simply saying, I want to talk about falling away from Christ. I want to talk about apostatizing. Actually, in this verse, he's talking about Christians. He's talking to Christians. He's not saying a true Christian can apostatize, but he's telling believers that they need to grow up. They need to press on into maturity. Note verse 9. But, beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you, things that accompany salvation. And he even tells them why. Because he's seen God work in their life. Faith and love ministering to the saints. Even this hope that, that they have. Four through eight is a divine means that God has ordained for Christians to use to help them to grow. You know, it's not always easy to take medicine. Medicine can taste horrible, but it can be very helpful. For me, I've had the hardest time all of my life swallowing pills. Even to this day, for me to ever take a, a pill, a capsule, I have to break it open and pour it into a glass of water. You know how horrible that tastes? It, I know it's my fault for not being able to take that pill. And it tastes terrible, and it can be difficult, but it, it can make me healthy. This passage, verses 4 through 8, may taste terrible. It, it may not make you excited. It may not get you thrilled. But it's written to help Christians to grow. And sometimes some well-meaning, godly interpreters will say that Hebrews is written to three different groups of people. Believers, uh, professing believers that were being tempted to drift away from Christ, and to unbelievers. And that this passage is probably written to unbelievers. Well, I would say first, verse 9, he says that they're saved. And then in chapter 6, verse 1, he wants them to press on into this maturity that in some way they have some level of maturity, though they may be acting as infants. He wants them to grow up in that maturity. But I think it's best to view this passage as being written to believers and believers that were being tempted by the world and by their former religion to leave Christ, to forsake Christ. Remember what we've said, that they had come to know Christ and family members and friends and relatives were put in prison. And so they're being tempted to to think, I, I became a Christian and things got worse. Things didn't get better. And they're being tempted then to go back to their former Judaistic religion. And so the Holy Spirit is writing them, and he's encouraging them, no, keep to it, keep going forward, keep growing in Christ. Because if you don't do that, and you go the other way, you reject Christ, you're going to show that you never were saved in the first place. The means, in other words, for a Christian to persevere in the faith is these warning passages. Just as we had in chapter 3, verse 14, for we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast 
the beginning of our assurance from until the end. He's not saying you're saved by perseverance, you're saved by good works. He's saying that if you are saved, you will persevere. If you are saved, you're going to have good works. And I think at times, we can do a disservice to the church if we take this passage and look at it as, well, this passage is for those that are just doing really poor in Christ and they're they're almost about to fall away from Christ or this passage is for only unbelievers. This morning I would say this passage is for the most spiritual elite in this room. This passage is for you. And if you don't think it's for you, then you're being prideful. Everybody in here at one point of their Christian life has thought what? Is it worth it? Should I keep following Christ? Should I pursue a life of sin? Should I pursue just a moral good life, but forget about Christ? All of us, in one way or another, in our life, and maybe even now some of you are, are thinking, is there something better besides Christ? Am I just going to waste my time following Jesus? Should I go a different direction? A passage like this is written to this whole church, these Hebrew believers, and to us to help us to understand that, yes, we're saved by grace, we're kept by grace, but that is also worked out through a passage like this that's given us a warning that if we don't press forward, then we could end up revealing that we never laid hold of Christ ever. So again, this text is given to support the command to press on. Remember, Paul says in Philippians 3, I press on. I haven't reached the mark yet, but I'm going to keep pressing on. And so do we. Now, number three. This text is in the third person. That is, if you look at, like, for example, verse 3 of chapter 6, this we will do, that's first person. Chapter 6, verse 1, let us press on to maturity. That's first person. If you look at chapter 5, verse 12, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. Verse 9 of chapter 6, but beloved, we, first person, are convinced of better things concerning you, second person. So in this passage, when the writer talks about how they basically are behaving like infants, he says, you, or if he wants to include himself about pressing on in Christ, you see that in chapter 6, verse 1, chapter 6, 3, chapter 6, verse 9. But when he's talking about people that have professed Christ, they made a confession of faith, but then they fall away, he switches to third person. It's, it's a little bit more distance. The writer, the preacher, in this book that's preaching to these Christian Hebrew believers is not saying, you have apostatized. You have left the faith. You know good people. Again, in fact, he says in chapter 6, verse 9, we're convinced of something better about you, that, that you're really saved and we've seen God working in your life. Just don't be sluggish. Keep going forward with your faith and patience. 
So in this section, one of the reasons why I think it's caused so much confusion and maybe some doubt and dismay, because even the idea of the person, you know, you and we and he, the writer, the Holy Spirit here is not saying you, the Hebrews have fought, you Hebrew Christians, you have fallen away. It's more that he's given a theological principle. There's a theological principle that the Holy Spirit has given to the people saying, for example, here is a an illustrative case. That is the nation Israel. And we could go back to chapter 3, verse 7, and reread that whole section. It says in verse 19 of chapter 3, talking about Israel, so we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. But yet they saw the power of God, the blood of the of sacrificial lambs were put over their doorway. And so their firstborn were not killed by the death angel. They were fed daily by God in the wilderness with manna. They saw God open up the, the Red Sea so Israel could go through the sea unharmed and completely dry. They saw all these incredible miracles of God. They, they experienced more miracles, over two million did, than we ever will in our life. And yet every single one of them, except for two, it says in verse 19 of chapter 3, didn't enter the promise because of unbelief. So I think clearly what's happening in chapter 6, verses 4 through 8, as the Spirit of God is summing up what he just talked about, that there was a people that had the form in the name of God's people. They lived with, with pagans for 400 years, and then God redeemed them, and they came out of bondage and slavery, and they received the Word of God, and God gave them his love, and then they rejected God. You know, you can read Exodus 19, I think it is Exodus 14. They sang, they had a jamboree, they praised God with all their lips, and then they didn't believe God. They had the heavenly gift, chapter 6, verse 4, right? Every day, man, <laughs> I think at times quail. They saw miracles of the powers of the age to, came, to come. They heard, They tasted the good word of God. Right? They received the first five books of the Bible. They experienced God in a profound way. But yet, at the end, they rejected God. And so what's happening, I think, in verses, again, 4 through 8, especially verses 4 through 6, is that the Spirit of God is given a theological principle for these Hebrew believers who are professing Christ who this book says, at least most of them, many of them are saved, and the Spirit of God believes they're going to go forward, but to help them to keep going forward, realize that Israel also had a name of God. And they also had, you can read Isaiah, I think it is 66, they had an experience with the Spirit of God that it says in that passage led them out of the, the wilderness, and yet they didn't even believe. They didn't believe God. So this is in third person because it's basically summing up a theological principle that we'll talk about next. So this is number four. 
Number three, again, is this text is in third person because it's teaching a theological principle. Number four, what is this theological principle? Biblical principle. Impressive spiritual experience of God do not equal salvation. Impressive spiritual experiences of God do not equal salvation. This is what we see in verses 4 through 5. The nation Israel had real experiences with God. They were really delivered out of Egypt by by power, by the power of God, by miracles of God. God talked to them. God gave them his word. God dwelt with them. God took care of them. But they didn't fully embrace Yahweh. And this passage, as it's being written to believers, to Christians and their new covenant, it says in the case of those who have been enlightened, they've tasted, they've been partakers of the Spirit, have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. Because of these words, enlightened, verse 4, tasted, partakers, verse 5, tasted, then some say, well, this has to be believers, and then believers here would be losing their salvation. Well, that's not necessarily the case. You do have Psalm 34, 34, 8, O taste and see, you know, how good God is, how blessed all those who take refuge in Him. And you have the word certainly used that way. But that these words do not automatically immediately equal salvation. For example, look at verse 4 where it says, enlightened. Enlightened. Enlightened is illumination. That is that God gives understanding. Uh, John chapter 16 talks about when the Spirit comes, He's going to give understanding and conviction. For example, you, you hear a sermon even before you were saved, even some of your friends or, or relatives, they hear a sermon, they read the Word, they, they hear something on TV from the Bible someplace, and they grow in their understanding about God. They they realize that they're a sinner, that there's one God, one true God, that they need a Savior, that Savior is Christ. But growth and knowledge does not equal regeneration. Enlightenment and conviction does not equal regeneration. Regeneration involves conviction and enlightenment, but conviction itself, that is understanding that you're a sinner and that you need a Savior, does not mean you're saved. You have to repent and trust Jesus. Those that call in the name of the Lord will be saved. I've met many people that say, even in prison, when I was a prison chaplain, that I've said, I'm a sinner and I need to be saved. Okay, would you like to pray now, repent and trust Jesus? No. So a person can even be at church and grow up in church and understand that they need a Savior and yet never be saved. I, I was enlightened. I, I don't think I was enlightened in the sense of always understanding that I was a sinner, that I was only saved by grace, and that I needed to repent and trust Jesus. I think I understood that like from the age of five. But I, I refused to repent. My mother would tell me almost every single day, Tommy, don't forget 
Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you were saved through faith, this not of yourself, not of works, lest any man should boast. Have you prayed to receive Jesus yet, Tommy? You need to pray to receive Jesus. <laughs> Almost every single day. So you can know about God and yet not know him. Especially for those in the church. You can be older or young and you can know about the Bible and know about God and know about being a sinner and yet not truly be born again and regenerated. Enlightenment doesn't equal conviction. They've tasted of the heavenly gift. Verse 4. In context of Israel, it could be referring to to manna. That is, that God gave them a, a direct gift to sustain them. In context of the New Testament, it could be the heavenly gift. It could be similar to later where it talks about they partakers of the Holy Spirit. That is, they were around and could give examples of the Spirit of God working on them, maybe even in them, even with other people. They were experiencing God's grace in their life. There was an experience of that. The word tasted means you are experiencing. And so they tasted of God's good gifts. You can see that in 1 Corinthians 7 where it talks about if there is a a believer in a home and they're saved that they can end up sanctifying the whole family, influencing the whole family. This could be very similar. You can have individuals that aren't saved and they're part of a local church body and they experience many blessings from God. But it doesn't mean that they're saved. For the case of Israel, they would have certainly ran out and embraced the manna and ate the manna and made all kinds of different food with manna, but they never embraced the Savior. They never embraced the Lord. They've been made partakers of the Holy Spirit. That is, they've shared in the Spirit of God. Well, how could this be? If somebody makes a profession of Christ, has all kinds of outward experiences of the Spirit of God, and yet not be saved? Well, think about it this way. Did Judas experience the Spirit of God? Did Judas do miracles? Apparently so. Was he saved? No. There can be, again, conviction, uh, illumination, Certainly in the New Testament, during the Gospels, some people could be healed and not be saved. We can use our spiritual gifts, and that's the Spirit of God working in us, and we can use our spiritual gifts. And even unbelievers can can be affected by the use of spiritual gifts in a good way. They could be comforted, they could be convicted, they, they could be encouraged, they could be healed. And even that's why I think it says, and I've tasted the good Word of God, that is, you can have people that profess Christ and they love to come to church and, and they love to hear preaching. They love to hear preaching. There are people that aren't even saved. They, they name the name of Christ, but they like a good sermon better than they like the good Savior. They like an experience of an orator rather than 
trembling and humbling themselves before the Word of God. That's what this passage is saying. It's very easy to, especially this day and age, just listen to a podcast and fall in love with all kinds of different preaching and yet never see your life change. And if that happens, you're... You're in this list. You're, you're beginning just to get into this list here. Because if you're not, if you're hearing the word, hearing the word, hearing the word, hearing the word, but not growing with what you're hearing, then are, are you going forward in Christ? Yes, listen to the word. But just because you taste the word, and by taste it doesn't mean necessarily just a little bit. That, that's not the connotation. It's that you had real experience with, with, with the Word of God. Maybe you were even convicted. But yet you've never humbled yourself and said, I'm a sinner and I need to be saved and I, I need to get closer to Jesus. And by faith in His grace, I'm never going to let go of Jesus ever. Everything else can go, but I would never let go of Jesus ever. By faith, I, I trust Him. And even he says in verse 5, the powers of the age to come. That is heaven, you know, that, that perfect place. The, the church is to be a glimpse of heaven when all the spiritual gifts are being, I don't mean, uh, you know, signs and wonders and miracles and those things, but when we're using the gifts that God gives us and we're loving one another and sacrificing one another, heaven's a, a world of perfect love. And when there's perfect love that's at least growing to be perfect in a congregation and it's being exhibited, that is the powers of the age to come. And people, of course, can come into our church and profess Christ and they love the body. And they love church life. And they love fellowship. But you can love church life and you can love being loved, but not necessarily love Jesus. You can love being loved by the body of Christ, but not necessarily love Jesus. Again, you can have... One can have, to say consistent with third-person usage, one can have impressive spiritual experiences with God and yet not truly be saved. Later in this book of Hebrews, the writer will talk about the anchor. Where is our anchor? And here, when you look at this passage, it seems that in verses 4 through 6, that there is this, temptation at times for all of us to put our anchor in impressive spiritual experiences instead of in the supreme and sufficient Savior. Many people are going to have more spiritual experiences than you. Does that mean they're closer to, to God than you? There can always be these spiritual highs, and I think it's sometimes in life we always want to get up to these spiritual high mountains, and I want to get way up here, because when you get up here and you have these really impressive spiritual experience, mountaintop experiences with God, that's where it's at. But if we're not careful, then we anchor our faith there and not in the bedrock of Christ. 
And then when something happens, when there's a tragedy in our life or maybe somebody that we look up to falls, and then we end up falling away. And that's what it says in verse 6. And then have fallen away. It's impossible to renew them again. The anchor, in other words, for our faith, is not in these experiences, but in the fact of the person of Jesus Christ, who is supreme and sufficient and the best there is. And out of that, we experience you know, the fruit of the Spirit, you know, patience and love and, and joy. And we see ourselves growing and overcome sin, overcoming the sin that's in our life. Number five. And we're seeking to press into what exactly this passage is talking about. Number five. Rejecting full, clear revelation of Jesus Christ places a person in the worst possible position. Rejecting full, clear revelation of Jesus Christ places a person in the worst possible position. Look at verse 6. Verse 6 says, These people have experienced these people. I'm saying that because it's third person. There can be people that experience the gospel and Christianity in a real way in the sense that they're not making it up when they say they've been convicted or that they feel loved or that they like to pray or they like to hear a sermon. But yet what can happen at times is they fall away. And then if they do that, they're never going to be able to repent and then verse 6, the second half, it gets into the reason why. It says, it says, since, because, they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. That is a, a person that hears the word of God clearly preached over and over and over and over and over and over again. And even knows that they're a sinner and that they need to be saved. And evil know, even knows that they've been loved and they themselves have, have loved others and they've been involved really in the gospel and in church life, to a, maybe even to a large degree. But yet, at some point in their life, they reject all that. Verse 6, the end, is saying they're like that crowd. When it says here at verse 6, look at the end, since again they crucified to themselves the Son of God. They're like that crowd before Christ when he was being tried, and Pilate said, here, I have Barabbas, and I have Jesus. Should I set Jesus free for you? And they shouted Barabbas, and for Christ, they said, crucify him, crucify him. So when a person hears the gospel, and the Bible doesn't give any length of time, and really experiences the things of God, and experiences the things of Christ, and has a a revelation in their head, you know, in terms of there's enlight- understanding, enlightenment to who God is, who Christ is, who they are, what is true. And they come to a point where they finally reject all of that. Then, in essence, they're saying, crucify him! I choose Barabbas! And they put him to open shame. They're saying, Jesus is not worthy enough for me. Jesus is not precious 
to me like the world is. They're seeking a different Savior. This can be run, sorry, this can be done by running quickly from Christ. It can be done by slowly drifting away. As I said earlier, maybe there's a tragedy in the family. I've seen that happen many times. And our son or our father then rejects Christ. I, I say this with as much respect as I can. My own father, his two oldest sons died. And then my mother, his wife died. And then he told me, I don't want that Christ. That was a very clear rejection. And he even told me one time, Tom, you're saved by the grace of God and Christ. Is he in heaven? My brother said he prayed the sinner's prayer before he died. Or kind of mouthed it. Only the Lord knows. But this passage is saying there can be a place in a person's life where that place is, only God knows. Where that person says, I don't want that Christ. And I think we can say in verse 6 when it says it's impossible to renew them again to repentance, it's the idea that God says, okay, okay, I give you over to yourself. You don't want me? Okay. You can have that. What goes along with that is eternal doom. And I think that's why this passage has caused so much discussion is because (laughs) the end point of this, for those that have a full, by full revelation, I mean that the truth is taught clearly about God and Jesus. And they understand that they're that they're a sinner and they need a savior and that they reject that. That's a very dangerous place to be in. They're in the worst possible place. There is nothing worse than for a person to know the truth about Jesus and to say, I don't want that Christ. Can you imagine a worse a worse thing to, to say and a worse place to, a worse state to be in? There's nothing as terrible as that. And again, this is given not for you and I to necessarily analyze people, but to analyze who? Yourself. You. Are you growing in Christ? Because if you're not growing in Christ to some degree, even to a small degree, then you're putting yourself in a dangerous position. Where there could be a time and you say, forget it. <laughs> I would rather do something else and follow Jesus. Number six. A clarification, I think we do need to say this. The Lord is able to save anyone even on their deathbed. The Lord can save anyone any time he wants to. 
It will be by grace alone, through faith alone, and, and Christ alone. God even says, Jesus says in Matthew 19, it's impossible for man, but it is po- all things are possible for God. And I think of my own life. I, I was dead. That is here in Hebrews chapter 6, where it says it's impossible to renew them again to repentance. It's not the idea that God is trying to grant somebody repentance but it's just too difficult. God can't do it. It's not that these people are beyond God being able to save them. That's not the idea. Nothing is too difficult for God. It's that these people don't want to repent. After having many types of graces and blessings from God. And so I said, I, I was spiritually dead. I, I think I would have been one of the most difficult people to be saved. I was spiritually dead. I walked according to the ways of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air that works in a spirit of disobedience. And I lived in the lust of my flesh and of my mind. And then all of a sudden, God, rich in mercy, great in love, by amazing grace, made me alive together with Christ. And so God can do that. So I would say if you have a loved one, and we all have had or have, keep praying for them. Again, this passage is not saying don't pray for them. This passage is saying look at your own life and be sure that you are growing in Christ. Don't stop praying for those that may have come to church maybe even sang songs to Jesus and yet they've fallen away. Keep praying for them. We don't know the time of when will be that type of final rejection where they would say, no, no more. Remember the thief on the cross, right as he's dying. Remember me and your kingdom, Lord. Yes, I will. Let's keep praying. This passage is, in a sense, not for them, but for us. Number seven. We're close to finishing. Number seven. And I already said this, so I'll I'll make it Quick, when a person rejects the gospel after truly experiencing gospel realities, God in his timing may give them just what they want. That is, if a person hears the gospel over and over and over and over and over and over and over again and experiences you know, a true love and fellowship from the word and from a congregation and then rejects it and 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 rejects it, and rejects it then... According to this passage, there may come a time when God says, okay, I give you what you want. A Christless reality forever. You want a Christless reality? You can have it. Forever. Basically, I think this passage is saying, Grow in Christ so you don't become a Judas or an Esau. Esau sought repentance, but he's, but not a true, sincere repentance. Judas, remember, had remorse that he hung himself. There's a type of ungodly sorrow and ungodly remorse. This passage is saying, don't go, don't go down the road of Judas and Esau. Don't go that way. Instead, grow. Grow in Christ. So you don't go down, down the road of Jesus, of Judas and Esau and end up in hell. That's what this passage is saying. Simply having an appetite for God and for Christ doesn't mean that you're saved. 
We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, through repentance and faith and trust in Jesus. And that's displayed by pursuing Jesus and growing some in Christ. That's why Second Peter chapter 1, 5-11 through 11 says, Add to your faith brotherly kindness and love and knowledge. So push forward in Christ. Now, as we conclude, this will just be super quick. How do we apply this text? Just a a few ideas. Number one would be be sure you're saved. Be sure you're saved. How can you know that you're saved? Have you repented and trusted Jesus Christ? If you haven't, today is the day of your salvation. Don't don't play games with God, games with Christ, games at church. God is real. Jesus Christ is King of kings, Lord of lords. And everybody here, one day, we will face him and look right into his eyes. That's true. We will all stand before God, before Christ. So today is a day of salvation. Repent and be saved. Number two... Slog it out in the long term. That is, faith is day-to-day, step-by-step, pressing forward. The outworking of real faith is this looking at Jesus, going through the trials of the earth, not looking for spiritual shortcuts or super spiritual experiences, but trusting Christ during difficult times, clinging to him, trusting in him, and growing through those, seeing that he is Supreme and sufficient. And then third, and finally, if you have been thinking, and I mentioned this, but if you've been thinking this sermon is not for you, you're with love and respect, you're wrong. This sermon is for you. This sermon is for me. Can this kind of sermon be for a pastor? It's probably most for a pastor. Pastors of all people have to be careful that they grow in Christ or they could apostatize. Is that true? Do do you know pastors who've apostatized? Yes. Famous pastors have apostatized even recently. Why? I would imagine because they weren't pursuing Christ to get to know him deeply. For a pastor and for you, Christianity can just be a profession or a religion. But it's a relationship with Christ. That's why we have Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. Verse 3, for consider him. So may we fix our eyes on Christ and keep growing in Jesus. Jesus is the supreme and sufficient Savior. And if I could lose my salvation, as R.C. Sproul has said, if I could lose my salvation, I would. But Christ holds us. He keeps us saved. Therefore, because our salvation is secure and eternal, pursue Christ and pursue growing in Him. Is this sermon for you? Yes, it's for you and it's for me. What would the main point be this morning? Never, 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 ever leave Jesus. Resolve, again, like last week, resolve to grow closer to Jesus. In fact, 
this week when Satan tempts you and he tempts you to depart and to sin and to leave Christ. Take that as an opportunity to say out loud and to resist the temptation and to say no. Now, because I'm tempted to leave and depart Christ and depart Christianity and forsake the Lord, because of that temptation, I'm going to resolve to grow even more in Christ. Because I've been tempted, I'm going to seek to get closer to Jesus. And every time Satan tempts me and my flesh tempts me, I'm going to take steps even more to get closer to Jesus. And that is slogging it out step by step through faith. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this word, this warning and your word for us to grow in Christ. And we praise you because you are working and willing within us, Lord. But may we heed this warning and not be satisfied with merely outward experiences. But Lord, may we seek to have that internal experience of knowing Christ, the hope of glory, Lord. We pray that you would work this in us for Christ's sake. Amen.